Hello and welcome to the American Cinema Foundation Movie Podcast. I am your host Titus and today I am joined again by my good friend Flag Taylor for a discussion of comedy and communism. Flag has a deep interest in studying totalitarianism in Europe and he has a book out that he edited on the great and brave Czech intellectual Václav Benda, The Night of the Watchman is the name of the collection and you can hear him talk about it at length on the Federalist Radio Hour and elsewhere. We will put links in our posts on this for people interested but today we'll be talking not about the noble but about the comic side of art and engagement with the regime in communism. Partly it's because we both watched The Death of Stalin, the new movie by Armand Iannucci, the comedy with the all-star British cast and Steve Buscemi, a lot of famous actors from the stage. And partly it's because Flag and I talk about communism and the legacy it left and the way people dealt with it at the time and why it is that communism bred so much humor and of course most of it so dark gallows humor for the most part. Flag, first of all, thanks for joining me. This was a great idea. It's a subject worth addressing. And of course, for me, in a way, it's personal having grown up in communist Eastern Europe in Romania. But I was a boy when the local tyrant Ceausescu was assassinated on Christmas Day. And then freedom with capitalism and democracy with a very different way of life came. And that's what I grew up with. Uh, communism is more of a story than a reality for me for that reason. And your scholarly work and your anecdotes are always impressive. I know you have recently been doing research work on totalitarianism in Eastern Europe, in the Czech Republic. Again, that you're involved with various organizations in America that deal with this. Sure, yeah, I'm, I'm happy to talk about communism and the death of Stalin. So you're about the best interlocutor I could have wished for for such a podcast. Thanks again for joining me. It's great to be back on the podcast again. I must say I was very excited about this movie. I had read lots of things about it before I watched it. I think it was generally pretty well reviewed, although I think you and I, as we'll talk about later, both think ultimately it's a failure. It doesn't quite work. But I think it's important that we emphasize how crucial and interesting the subject of communism and humor is. Comedy can be a mode of truth-telling, all the way back to Aristophanes, right? It's been a mode of puncturing the pretensions of powerful people. And so I think in that sense, comedy under communism played an important role in enabling ordinary people to kind of bring a level of normality to their lives by calling out the ridiculousness of what they witnessed around them, the absurdity of what they witnessed around them. You can see this in a few different places probably too many places to mention on the podcast, but I thought we would at least mention two. One, of course, the great French-Czech novelist Milan Kundera, his first novel is called The Joke, and the plot opens when a young Czech student who is serving his obligatory two-year time in the army writes a letter to his girlfriend, and he includes in this letter a joke that says, optimism is the opium of the people. Seems pretty innocuous, but it makes fun of, of course, the Marxist notion is that religion is the opening of the people. And he received plausible penalties and is expelled from university and all these things. And it's important that later in the book, a friend of Ludwig, the protagonist, explains to him why this punishment ultimately was meted out to him. 
The friend says to him, no great movement designed to change the world can bear sarcasm or mockery because they are a rust that corrodes everything it touches. That gets at this point that comedy has always been a way of puncturing the pretensions of the powerful, but that's all the more important under communism, right? Because I think it can be argued that never has there been people with more exorbitant ideals and pretensions, right? The idea that we're going to create a new man, create new human beings, is obviously a pretty big bet to place money on. And so it's no accident that people found so many things to make fun of living under communism. And then the other great author I would mention who writes on this is, of course, Orwell. He has this famous quote that every joke is a tiny revolution. He wrote this essay in English humor, but he's at least alluding to the importance of communism and ideologues when he's talking about the need for puncturing these outlandish claims with jokes. And so this film, I had high hopes for it. I thought, well, there are great actors in it. Certainly it's going to be a movie that I want to see and lots of people are going to see. And then, of course, I was all the more disappointed. I just felt like it didn't deliver on its promise. I also recommend Milan Kundera's novel, The Joke. It's remarkable because it treats two different stages in the history of Czech communism. First, the late 40s, when communism has just arrived at the end of the war. In a sense, it has liberated the country from Nazis and didn't get into power quite violently. So there was some support and even a significant measure of enthusiasm. Marches in the street for the new ideology and the new liberation. And then the 60s, before the coming of the Prague Spring and revolt against communism, when nevertheless everyone had become disillusioned, the former idealists were now corrupt opportunists or simply depressed, and communism had been revealed for the ugly lie it was and a blight on people's lives. The yeah, I think you're right. about how this man is blighted in so many ways that go beyond yeah. prison. And in the early parts, he commits this one act of treason by a joke, the meaning of which is to disabuse his girlfriend who has left him behind for a summer camp that's all about ideology. She's such a conformist, she prefers ideology to love, and he is of course upset with it, and that is the meaning of his youth manly rebellion in a private joke and she reports him out of a sense of duty not only to the ideology but to him she thinks it will be good for him to be punished in the right communist way so that he can learn better he can be reformed exactly (laughs) and this turns out to lead to a moral catastrophe that shadows in certain ways the social catastrophe not least of all because at some level it becomes a personal corruption and the man sent to jail does not in fact become a martyr in certain ways he becomes a fallen man so it has a certain psychological depth and a certain honesty about the history of communism from the 40s through the 60s in many places in eastern europe not just czechoslovakia it's quite remarkable. It was also made as a movie in 1969, just after the Prague Spring was crushed and Dubček was arrested, beaten up, re-educated, and sent back to Czechoslovakia to tow the party line from yeah. Moscow. I think eventually and... Dubček ends up as a diplomat in Turkey. Like, wow, yeah. So, yes. And it was made as a movie in uh, Czechoslovakia by uh, Jaromil Jiresh. It's quite a good movie in the original. It was 49 years ago. Now, I would also like to mention something I grew up with. The first satires of communism I'm aware of 
by two Russian writers, Ilf and Petrov, in 1928 and 31 respectively. These are very bleak, black comedies. The first is called The Twelve Chairs, the second one The Little Golden Calf. They feature this unlikely hero, Ostap Bendar, the Grand Master of Combinations. This is all in Soviet Russia in the 20s. The name of the man is not Russian because he's not ethnically Russian, but everybody's Soviet now. He's a rascal and a trickster, an incredible cheater who manages to lie people into and out of anything more or less he wants and who hopes to acquire a great fortune to save at least himself from the misery that collectivization has brought to Russia. And his promised fortune is in a mysterious set of 12 chairs from an old aristocratic estate, one of which holds treasure. And so the first novel is taken up with chasing down which one it is by a cast of characters. You can imagine it as it's a mad, 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 mad world, but with these entirely new stakes, you have to confront the full sociology and the moral inhumanity of Soviet communism in the 20s. And nevertheless, this was allowed to be published. It's one of the strange paradoxes of tyranny and even ideological tyranny. And it also got a sequel. There were very good books. They are both well-written with a good eye for the insanities of communism in Soviet Russia down to how people name their shops, stuff they write in newspapers that is yeah. gobsmackingly insane, but at the same time fully earnest from an ideological point of view. Right. And it also has a certain art because, again, it displays the corruption of the human heart in as much as that is available to comedy, of course. This also was made into a movie in 1970 by Mel Brooks, The Twelve Chairs, with a young Frank Langella and Mel Brooks himself. It's an alright movie, but not Mel Brooks at his best. It's commendable that he tried to humiliate communism as much as he did Nazism, given that communism has had much better reputation in the West. But the novels are much better and they're now easily available in English translations. They're, I think, the gold standard for how hilarious something can be while dealing with Soviet communism. And seeing the death of Stalin made me compare the two works simply because there are few of which I'm aware that have such an ambition to describe in black comedy the ugliest, most long-lasting ideological tyranny we yeah. have yet encountered. Something that you mentioned just struck me that I had emphasized a minute ago, mocking these great pretensions of the communists to transform human nature and bring this world of equality and plenty into being. The other aspect that makes communism just ripe for comedy, of course, is the idea of the lie in your soul, right? Going all the way back to Plato, this is the worst kind of lie, is the lie in one's soul. People who experienced the lie in their soul and had to think about the compromises and their willingness to lie to themselves and to lie publicly to other people saw joking and comedy as a way to reflect on that in a way that hopefully was less dangerous than just speaking the truth, right? It's a sort of a more subtle way of speaking the truth. But I think what you just mentioned is important. Portraying that in film can be tricky. And so maybe that's part of what happened with the death of Stalin, although I'm not so sure the director even tried to get at this aspect of communism in any depth. Yeah, I think you're right. And this is a very important thing. You and I, with our friend Carl Scott, did a podcast on the lives of others, which treats the attempt of artists to deal with the regime and to try to establish a kind of independence and offer people a moral uplift or a moral alternative, an independent standpoint from that of the regime through dramatic art, not comedy. 
and that of course turns out to be a humanistic but incredibly bleak story because of the crushing power of the regime. Yeah, I think Carl calls the lives of others, at least from the standpoint of Maria Zeeland, a tragedy. So maybe this aspect of communism is a fit subject for tragedy more than comedy. Yes, and of course it's fitting because that's a movie about espionage, that is to say the way privacy, maybe your own mind, if you speak unguardedly, can be invaded by ideological tech-based tyranny, whereas comedy requires irony that you be able to say something that you don't truly believe and to hide what you truly believe in order to defend yourself because open defiance of the regime would mean harm or death. I grew up in 90s post-communist Romania with video clips, now they're on YouTube, of the most famous comic actor in Romania who used to do TV sketches that made fun of the regime in the 70s but they had to be discreet and very indirect because otherwise, of course, they would have been censored and perhaps led to worse consequences. And so it was possible to make some comedies about absurdities of the regime, but the limits of what could be done were very, very serious and people who trespassed, of course, did not meet with a good end. Still, as truth-telling in a public space that does not involve tragedy, sacrifice, death, or repression, this seems to have been the only way, perhaps not in all societies, but in most of them. Now, there are two things that we both know. It's our education. One of them is truth-telling in communist regimes. We remember Solzhenitsyn, whose famous Harvard address that could be summed up as live not by lies, is now on its 40th anniversary. And, of course, Václav Havel and the notion of the corrupting effects of acquiescing in lies one doesn't even believe. One's own consciousness ends up being pervaded by conformism and a certain sense of guilt and one's own complicity in a national yeah. or public guilt that cripples individuality, soul, principles, whatever may be hidden within us from the purview and the control of the party. But, on the other hand, there is, of course, Leo Strauss's persecution in the art of writing. Leo Strauss pointed out that communism had again taught intelligent and defiant men and women to take the path of irony, not of moral yeah. condemnation, so that they would not self-destruct and bring catastrophe upon their families and friends as well. So, these are two alternative ways to think about the duties and the possibilities of freedom of thought when facing the most catastrophic tyranny over the mind of man. And it's fitting since we've done one podcast that deals with something tragic like The Lives of Others, a beautiful film, we should do something to talk about comedy as well. And the power of comedy, as you say, is truth-telling, is criticism of the regime, as a restoration of what is natural. We laugh spontaneously, after all, not on cue. And what is, therefore, our acknowledgement and our sharing of the truth, that yeah. the situation is incredibly screwed up, that we are through the looking glass. As and this is say. why, yeah, I would add one thing. You mentioned Havel. Havel's great success and maybe the thing that he ought to be most well known for is his playwriting skills, right? And, you know, he puts his plays, I think, squarely in this tradition of the theater of the absurd. And he doesn't mention communism by name, I don't think, in any of them. But it's a world of hyper-bureaucracy, 
where people repeat themselves all the time. They talk in these stock phrases, and it's just this atmosphere of utter meaninglessness that becomes pregnant with meaning precisely because Havel allows people to step out of that world and kind of look at themselves and make fun of themselves. And that's why I think these plays, in a way, have been successful with Western audiences because even in the West, outside of communism, there's some experience with hyper-bureaucracy and the problem of the annihilation of the will and the individual. And so these plays have succeeded, I think, around the world. It's a testimony to, I think, his skill as a playwright, that he wasn't only concerned, I think, to speak to audiences who are living under communism, but I think he had people around the world in mind. Yeah, let me give you an example of insane bureaucracy and the way it threatens to deny all dignity, drive people crazy, and just bring on a kind of existential crisis in a strangely comic way. This happened last week in Romania. Some guy went to deal with some bills, with some financial issues at the equivalent of the IRS. And he presented all his documents there, and the lady at the counter simply told him, well, you don't look like your ID. Of course, it's been 10 years. That's why you give it to us for 10 years. People change. I lost a lot of hair, lady. Leave me be. It's late. This is urgent. Could we please go on with this? And of course, this started all the old communist reflexes, and the lady simply refused to acknowledge him. But this is not communist times anymore, and the man lost his school and made a scandal up until a cop came. And the cop said, okay, give me your name. Let me fine you. You're going to have to pay for this. It's yeah. perturbance of the peace. And the guy said, well, you can't do that. The lady just told me that I can't be identified. How can you possibly <laughs> find me if I'm not, in fact, who I am? <laughs> That's you great. Know, it shows you my too. legal documentation. What are you yeah. going to do? The cop said, but, you know, I do have to find you. And right. said, well, you know, take it up with the lady. And the lady says, we cannot admit the document. <laughs> the, the government does not legitimate that this person is who he says he is, despite all this documentation. And the cop insisted that nevertheless, he has to find the guy. And the guy said, but first of all, let's have a tete-a-tete here. Will all of us agree that if I take this fine, then that proves that legally I am who I am and I can go on with my business? <laughs> and He rescued his own dignity and identity by his willingness to be fine. <laughs> And the guy said, okay, I'll pay the fine. Here, lady, it's written in a legal document that I am who I am. (laughs) You cannot deny me services here. And that's what it took. It's a crazy way of thinking about the cost of doing business, but it does show how your very identity is threatened in mundane ways. There's no more police state, there's no more fear, jails, what have you, but these things still happen. Well, it's the willingness on the part of the woman bureaucrat, right, to, in a way, annihilate herself to just depart from her own capacity for judgment for reasons of safety. This, of course, happened all the time under communism. And, of course, the man didn't start with this calculation that at least I can get my business done by paying up. He started out of pure outrage and self-contempt, an angry, loud, bitter self-loathing for being part of such a nation, because this did not strike him as exceptional. Intolerable, but not unusual. This threat to dignity is always there. You won't be humiliated every time. You won't be in trouble every time. Authority isn't there simply to dehumanize itself in order to dehumanize you, but it'll keep happening. 
And that's, of course, the moral impulse that allows the plays, the drama, the storytelling in old communist countries to make its claims to claim attention and to reward people who pay attention with an understanding that they still are human beings because they realize how insane the world around them is and they have at least this capacity to share in the truth that they all know that this is crazy. Right. It does not create political change, of course, but it allows the survival of sanity. And even dealing with the ugliest aspects of their lives. So I'll tell you one quick Stalin-era joke. And so this deals with the secret police, the NKVD, right? Stalin secret police. A man knocks on the door of his neighbor's apartment. And he says, quick, quick, get up, get dressed. Of course, this results in screams of fear from the people who are inside the apartment. And they come to the door and he says, don't worry, it's nothing serious. I'm not the NKVD. I just wanted to tell you that your flat is on fire. <laughs> Wow. <laughs> so even Stalin's secret police, right, can be the object of humor. And so now, this year is the 65th anniversary of the death of Stalin, the Red Tsar, the killingest man in world history, maybe, the murderer like no other, and a movie comes out, The Death of Stalin, that's supposed to be a black comedy. The story revolves around the events of the night Stalin fell sick and went off to his death and the week of his funeral and the power struggle between the most important and most famous Soviet politicians. The story takes all sorts of liberties with who was in what position because in fact most of these people who are important to the plot had been demoted or sent out of Moscow by Stalin precisely because he was paranoid and the timeline is compressed this is not only the story of the death of Stalin, but the story of the death of Stalinism with the last moment summary execution of Lavrenti Beria, who used to run the NKVD, Stalin's secret police. And of course, this is compressed. Stalin died in March. Beria was arrested in the summer and only executed after another fake trial in December. This is all for the purpose of comedy compressed within a week and some of the facts are changed. But the story is essentially palace intrigue and its effect on the world around. The presentation of communism is so startling because it's essentially a feudal arrangement. The dignitaries of the state are also personal flunkies for the tyrant. Like the man who holds your chamber pot also deals with the country's finances or what have you. <laughs> right. The presentation there is a combination of aggression and servility, which would seem to describe our new form of barbarism. All of these men are servile to whoever seems to be above them, from whom they might incur danger, and they are tyrannical to anybody who is below them in the hierarchy, and for that reason seems to be at their mercy. Now, this is inherently funny because, of course, it reveals the contradictions between the ambition for power and the realities of subservience in such a system. And at this level, the story has at least a ghost's chance of working out however crazy it is to try and just make fun of tyranny. It has another thing going for it, because the actual circumstances of Stalin's death really are incredibly funny. When he was heard to fall, the guards at his door did not have the guts to enter, because they had orders against it and they knew it would be their lives. When he was found sick, nobody touched him or tried to help him because they didn't realize what decisions they should be making and what the consequences of making them might be. Is it better to save the tyrant's life, not to save, to try and succeed, to try and fail? 
which of these possibilities is least likely to lead to execution or horror and this led to hours and hours of the man dying more or less in his bodily fluids right. and then prolonged sickness for a couple of days of Stalin as he went to his meeting with the devil is also just as ridiculous because as the movie shows it really is the case that Stalin had dismissed and arrested so many doctors in one of his anti-semitic paranoias because they were Jews and then when he got sick they found it really really difficult to find the doctor whom they could bring to take care of him or plausibly try to save his life. Of course at the same time it was not clear whether they should bring a good doctor what if he should be a Jew what would that lead to and all these insane circumstances which are factually accurate add to the comic plausibility of the portrayal of a system that fails essentially at the top. There is such an obsession with taking control of people's lives and thoughts and holding them guilty and in fear over the consequences of their actions, regardless of competence, intentions, duties, etc., that whenever the system ceases to work, it does become very, very funny. The discrepancy, the distinction between the claims of absolute power, tyrannizing 20 million kilometers square of land, 170 million people, and threatening the world with nuclear destruction, on the one hand. On the other hand, dying in one's own bodily fluids, unaided by the very people one had held in terror and control for so long. There is some subject for comedy in this story. Yeah, I agree. I think the invocation of the doctor's plot was well done. That scene, when they finally do get the doctors and they're standing there, is pretty funny. And yeah, I do think the film had the potential to work, but ultimately I don't think it does. I think my main criticism has to do partly with how the servile people around Stalin are portrayed. I think Berea is the only one who is portrayed with ambition. Would you agree with that? I think yes. he's he's clearly out for himself and wants to rise should Stalin die. But the other guys, and I guess this would apply to Berea too, are just kind of bunglers. They're just portrayed as silly and incompetent and not quite sure of themselves. And so I think it left me a little cold. I mean, it's fine to point out that none of these people were as effective and as good communists as they thought themselves, but there's no effort to explore their attachment to the ideology. I suppose the one exception is Molotov, played by Michael Palin. He's portrayed as having some attachment to the ideology and is even willing in a wonderful scene to say really horrible things about his wife until she's actually brought into the room and then he takes it all back and, <laughs> yes, and hugs she her. she had been condemned to jail in one of Stalin's paranoid purges and so he decided to toe the party line and obey his master and betray his wife and he's yeah. still busy doing it out of a kind of terrorized obedience to Stalin or ideological right. conformity while she's being returned to his loving arms. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, to the extent that they're all just portrayed as incompetent bunglers, you know, roaming around shooting people. And, you know, there are lots of scenes with uh, NKVD going to people's flats and pulling them out. And there's an allusion to Berea, who was a rapist and used young girls for his own purposes. There's an allusion to him taking a young girl who worked at Stalin's dacha it all just falls flat, ultimately. If all of this is just the result of incompetence and bungling, it just doesn't work, ultimately. 
yeah so this is a problem that is simply implicit in our liberalism if you hold at the same time that the communists were bunglers and that they were the greatest evil people in world history you've got a problem it is not possible that they are so powerful and fearful that you need to bring them down burst their bubble humiliate them and then to say that they're utter bunglers you cannot condemn people you dislike as stupid and evil in the absolute in both cases at the same time this is nuts and this ultimately ruins the whole stake of the plot the story even seems to have an ugly liberal idea about whitewashing soviet communism in the sense that stalin is presented as a bad guy Beria is presented as a bad guy who murders people and who's trying to engineer his takeover of the Soviet regime. Everybody else is presented as a kind of good guy. They never do anything bad. Yeah, I guess even worse, right? They're portrayed as wanting to put the brakes on Stalin's craziness, right? And so Khrushchev is portrayed as, as a kind of good guy who's going to reform the system and let people out of jail. And there's even, I mean, I think the scene I was most uncomfortable with comes after Stalin's death. There's a scene where they cut to Siberia and a guy is lining prisoners up and he's about to shoot all of them. And he shoots one of them and then he gets a piece of paper that says to stop and then he stops. I think we're supposed to laugh at how arbitrary it is, but it just, again, detached from some attempt to portray the ideological underpinnings of class enemies and things like this. It just doesn't work and I think it fell flat. Yeah, the orchestration of a cover-up around Stalin's death simply so that nobody has information, so that nothing gets out, which was typical of Stalin and of communism, requires that Beria sends his men to start killing each other so that nobody who saw anything lives to tell anything about it. And this also is played for fun when you see soldiers who realize they're about to be executed running off with their would-be executors in pursuit down holes in the Kremlin or at Stalin's dacha, etc. Or, of course, people who are not even suspicious doing their duties for the NKVD even as others step behind them and smartly execute them because of their own orders. This isn't really funny. And it doesn't really have much by way of comic stakes, nor does it have any way of grasping what evil really means. The most telling scene in the movie for that reason is the one about sex slavery. We see Beria taking Molotov's wife out of jail and replacing her with this young woman whom he gives flowers. And this is all there is to that scene. And she can't be more than 15. Yes, this is a right? child. And, yeah. But at the same time, you would have no idea what is happening. You can't laugh at it because you don't know what it is, but if you know what it is, that Beria used to rape young girls. He would have his troops drive him around Moscow until he found somebody he wanted to rape, and then he would rape them. And when he was done with raping them, he would offer them flowers. And if they accepted those flowers, that was consent. And if they didn't accept the flowers, they were disappeared. Now, if you know that, can you laugh anymore? So there is a kind of liberal nihilism that says actually you can make fun out of anything. Stalin wasn't that hot a guy. They weren't that cool. They weren't that tough. You can laugh at their stupidity. But at the sacrifice of any moral understanding or a political understanding of what evil is. Yeah, and for the reality of the situation. In that sense, you can make fun of anything. You could consider that the dying gestures of somebody trying to get help are pantomime and then laugh at the comedy. Right. Is that comedy? Is that funny, really? 
this is what the problem of Yanucci and his story is. Now, this guy is simply not used to the ugly side of reality. He's famous for making Veep, and before that, the thick of it. These are political shows about Western democracies where craziness and absurdity abound in the center of administration and politics, where cynicism and corruption have replaced any sense of public duty, but nobody's murdering people. Yeah. There's no sex slavery in Julia Louis Dreyfus' famous portrayal of an American vice president on Veep. Yeah, that cynicism and corruption, anymore. a kind of knowingness about the world, that's just a subject of a whole different order than the kind of ideological tyranny that is the subject of the death of Stalin. And I think you're right. I, I think he seemed to think that he could use the same kind of approach to the one as to the other. You know, that's just, didn't. I don't think it worked out well in the end. Yeah, the man is out of his league. He's a good comic writer. He has all these successes that he can claim and everyone should recognize them and enjoy those shows. But he doesn't realize more than really anybody else realizes just how different tyranny is from a free country. It's one thing for Americans to keep calling each other Nazis, Hitler, what have you. Americans love this sort of rhetoric. The press is full of it and it's never gonna stop. But it's another thing to think that that means you know what a Nazi is, or a communist, or right. that you have any idea what life and politics were like in such regimes. For that reason, it's a damn shame that the movie wasn't good, that they didn't get things right, that they didn't realize a bunch of bunglers trying to get power portrayed in the most bloodless and effete way imaginable is not going to cut it. Right. You can't say that you dare laugh at Stalin, that you dare laugh at communism, when you don't dare show almost any of it. Right. That's not guts. I would put my criticism ultimately this way, and in a way this is meant to modify my criticism a little bit, just because I think it's such a hard thing to pull off comedy and communism on film. There are two dangers if you're trying to show a film about communism to Western audiences that's supposed to be both funny, but also tell you something true and interesting about it. One danger is that you will just suggest to the audience that these people were just evil lunatics and just so off the reservation crazy. And the system is therefore so different from ours that we can kind of make fun of them for being silly and stupid but they don't really represent anything that we need to worry about. And then the other is to suggest that these guys were kind of bunglers like in any political system, and it therefore assimilates the problems with communism to generic political problems, right? In other words, the two extremes are either you make communism sort of incomprehensible and therefore dismissible because it's crazy, or you just assimilate it to any old political system and say, well, they're not different from ourselves. And right. So the trick is to avoid both of those extremes and show both why communism is a different thing and distinct and worthy of analysis using you know, special categories like ideology and totalitarianism and trying to explore its singular nature, but also to understand the parts of the human soul that would lend oneself to be attracted to it and say, well, you know, these are longings that seem to satisfy human beings at any time in any place 
and therefore we can't just dismiss it as alien. And so that's a very difficult thing. And so I think he succumbed to both extremes in a weird way, showing them as bunglers, and especially with the Khrushchev character and the Malenkov character. Oh, these are just kind of ordinary idiots running around who don't know what they're doing, and therefore they're like us. But with the Berea character, right, then you get the, oh, he's so extreme and evil. We don't have to worry about that because that's just a kind of nuttiness that we don't see. I guess that captures my criticism of it. Yeah, I think this is a typically liberal misunderstanding, and it's not the man's fault. It's been generations of this. It just smacks of the old silly liberal idea that when you deal with a tyranny, you should think about which rulers are moderates, which are extremes, and try to construct a structure in your mind where there are lots of people there who are just like you and you can agree with them. That you could negotiate with Khrushchev, that you can negotiate with Iran, you could negotiate with North Korea. Indeed, America has negotiated North Korea into comparative riches through all the aid and nuclear weaponry to boot. Yeah. The very people who have done this for a generation are now for sure that they know what is next necessary to be done. And right. presumably they should repeat the feature with Iran. Now, whatever the difficulties, and there are great difficulties in dealing with the politics, just like in another sense, there are great difficulties with understanding in a poetic or a philosophical way what's happening in a tyranny, it is at least clear that this delusion about would-be moderates like Khrushchev and would-be hardliners, in this case, Beria, this is nuts, and it yeah. mars the drama. But you're right that Yanushi has certain virtues and the opening scene that has absolutely nothing to do with the story but is supposed to reveal the character of tyrannical insanity and ideology in communist Russia at concert hall shows that he has a certain gift that if you exclude the question of politics or rule, who installs order by what means, then he could have done quite a good story. He gives you this show, there's an opera, and everybody listens to it, is thrilled, it's over, and as people prepare to go home, the people who do the sound engineering and have run of the place get a call from Stalin himself saying that he wants a recording of the thing on his desk. He wants to listen to it. This comes out of the blue, and at the same time, of course, if you say no, you're dead. It speaks to a certain truth about Stalin. He was the first censor of Soviet movies primarily, and he would just watch them with his cronies and do censorship with his indications. He would rewrite lyrics for songs in patriotic musicals. And yeah, as yeah. the movie shows, two days before he died, he really did take a number of his cronies and show them a movie, a western. As Khrushchev later told John Wayne, Stalin was very serious, like Mao later, about assassinating John Wayne because of the amazing prestige he had accumulated and the way he embodied American public diplomacy, the freedom of the cowboy and the unwillingness to be humiliated or scared into submission. It was free America, it is most powerful, so it was an incredible symbol. That is all true about Stalin's strange ideas, but also incredible insights into propaganda and how to control culture and a lot of work he put into it. But it turns out, of course, that the opera is performed live and there's no recording of it because nobody thought about this in advance. And so this guy has to scramble like crazy to get everybody to stop, to bring more audience, to do the performance all over again so that it can be recorded and he doesn't have to die. Yeah. And, of course, promptly the conductor just faints, realizing the pressure of what they have to do now and the threat they're under. So now he has to go find the second conductor. <laughs> 
Now here the comic poet decided to keep things plausible. In reality, things like this happened, but in the example of which I know reading about this, they had to go find the third one actually, and the yeah. conducted drunk. Yeah, the wonderful scene where he first gets the call from presumably one of Stalin's secretaries that says, you have to call back in 17 minutes. And then they have this great back and forth, the two sound engineers, about, well, when did, 17 minutes from when I answered the phone or from 30 seconds ago? And it's, it's really, really well done and funny. I love the head sound engineer. And then he runs out into the music hall and starts yelling at people to sit down. It's just great. But it's, of course, not a good sign when the funniest scene in a movie is the very first scene. Yeah, it's pretty much downhill from there. And it has a certain comic genius. It's a true story, but it has nothing to do with the death of Stalin story, but it fits so well. And it has a certain introduction. You see people in a small opera house dressed up to the nines. This right. lovely performance, the whole prestige of culture. This is what Soviets had, like the Bolshoi theater, right? This was a big Cold War prestige public diplomacy push, like chess masters. And it turns out that they're actually all slaves that all this aristocratic pretense of high culture and beautiful clothing, everybody stopped there because they have to sit through the performance all over again because they're putting on a performance too, not just the people on stage. Yeah, and then they bring in the peasants off the street, right? He's sure that none of these people have ever listened to any classical music before. Yes, there you see that the poor and the rich are playthings, puppets, yeah. actors on Stalin's stage. And this makes a certain very deep argument that the movie simply abandons later. This is something that has been noticed since the days of Roman emperors. Very quickly, they started play-acting Greek myths, portraying themselves and acting as Greek tragic heroes. There is a certain right. insanity that connects tragedy with tyranny. And here, again, you see this. It's not you going to the theater to see. You are yourself the puppet in somebody else's uh, right. fantasy, in somebody else's play. And that establishes the highest theme of such a comedy, to compete with this insane desire of the tyrant, to offer not a tragedy but a comedy as the proper right. understanding of such a situation. And of course, that's why it's so sad that the movie failed. I'm glad right. they tried. I'm sorry they failed. Yeah, disappointing. This, this is our first podcast about a movie that we both didn't like. Yep. At so least we both didn't like it, so we didn't have to argue so much. But disliking it has made us fairly thoughtful, so I hope our audience will also be interested in our reflections on comedy and communism. Thanks for joining me again, and let's do something again soon. Sounds good. We'll talk to you later. All the best. <laughs>